How did you receive him? By faith. You came to the cross and you said, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do. Lord Jesus, I plead your blood that when you died and rose again, you did it for me. And at that moment, by faith, God saves you. As you've received him, so walk in him. You say, Lord Jesus, I cannot live this Christian life. I cannot be the husband I need to be. I can't be the employer or employee I need to be. I can't be the dad I need to be unless you fill me by your spirit. I cannot be the preacher I need to be. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Division on the Last Day of the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 53. In verse 37, Jesus claims that if anyone is spiritually thirsty, they should come to him and drink, and he will provide living water. We have seen that this invitation extends to all, even today, and we have so far discovered in this passage that 1. We must be thirsty, 2. We must come, and 3. By faith we must drink. As we pick up today in verse 34, in so doing we will overflow. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. First, you must thirst for Christ, then you must come to Christ. You see, in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, you leave behind the thirst quenchers of this world. When you come to Jesus Christ, you turn away from your sin. You cannot turn to Christ without turning from your sin. On one occasion, Peter, right after Pentecost, when he preached, the people fell under deep, deep conviction. And they said, Lord, what must we do? Peter, what should we do? What would God want us to do? And in one word, he says, repent. Paul, on another occasion, the man comes under conviction. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in one word, he says, believe. Who's right? They're both right. Because you cannot truly believe in the Lord Jesus without repenting. You do not need a Savior unless you come to grips with your own sin. Unless you're willing to turn to Christ from your sin, you'll never be born again. You cannot hold on to the world with one hand and Jesus Christ with the other. You must be willing to change your mind. And I would say that that's true not just in justification, it's true in sanctification. Now understand there's a difference. When God saves you, He justifies you, the Bible says. You are declared righteous. It doesn't mean that you're made righteous. You will not literally be totally made perfectly righteous until you get a glorified body. But God declares you righteous. He gives you a new status. Not only does he wipe out all of your sin, but he credits to your account the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that in him I have the righteousness of God. God looks at me today as holy, as forgiven. That's why the New Testament calls the believer a saint. But God wants to make in our practice what is true in our position. That's called sanctification, that process by which the position you have in Jesus Christ is unfolded. So when you became a believer, the Spirit of God came to live in you and He was filling you. There was a time when God was opposed to you and you were opposed to God. You are enemies of God, the Bible said. But when God saved you, you came into a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. It's called reconciliation in the Bible. 
But when you sin or I sin, what are we doing? We're turning our back on God. God's not turning his back on us, not as a child, but we turn our back on God. We say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And so God asks the believer to confess his sin. Every born-again, blood-bought child of God ought to memorize 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we end up bringing our will in line with God's will. And the Spirit who lives in us is once again free to fill us. Now understand, 1 John 1, 9 has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. I hear this verse used all the time as an appeal to lost people to get saved. It is not written to them, it is written to us who believe. If all you had to do was confess your sin to become a Christian, Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have just said, oh, God's a forgiving God. And if you confess, he'll forgive and you'll go to heaven. No, God has to have a basis by which he can forgive. And the basis is the blood of Jesus Christ. So God says, if we confess the word, you know, homo legeo, homo the same, legeo to say, the word confess means to agree with, to say the same thing. And so when you confess your sin, there are at least three considerations that the New Testament outlines for us. First, you acknowledge your sin. You name them to God. You know, it's well been said that we confess that we sin retail, but we confess wholesale. You know, this kind of general confession, oh, God, forgive me of my many sins. Well, that's not the way you did them, and so that's not the way you're to confess them. See, you don't really have to come to grips with your sin when you say, oh, God, forgive me for my many sins. But when I say, oh, God, forgive me for my lust, or God, forgive me for my lying, or God, forgive me for whatever it may be, then you're dealing with your sin honestly before God. So number one, you acknowledge your sin. And secondly, you acknowledge that the basis of that forgiveness is Christ's blood. Not only was it the cross that gave you new life, it is the cross that allows you to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Paul, uh, John will say in this context, it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. It is not your tears. I've seen a lot of Christians with crocodile tears without repentance. It is not your tears. It is not the money you give or the things you start doing that ever becomes a basis for the things you've done wrong as a Christian. It is still the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you come by faith in the Lord Jesus. You trust his death, burial, and resurrection to save you. It's the cross that saves you, not the faith. Faith is just the channel that accepts what Jesus did. Even so, it's not your confession. It's Christ's blood. But the channel to receive it is confession. So first, you acknowledge your sin. Secondly, you acknowledge that God has already paid for it through the death of his son. And third, you repent. You change your attitude toward that sin. Now take that back here to John chapter 7 and verse uh, 37. If you've been saved, you're secure. But understand, if you've been saved and you're living in sin, you are out of fellowship with God. Some of you here this morning, you need to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. You need to come to him for the first time. You need to trust him as your personal savior. Others of us... We need to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ to restore the fellowship that was lost. So first you thirst. Secondly, you come and repent. Third, you must drink. Look at the, the promise. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you have to appropriate the Lord Jesus into your life. We all know what it means to thirst. We all know what it means to come to a person. And we all know what it means to drink. 
we know what it means to imbibe fluid into our body. Well, Jesus uses this as an illustration of God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do I drink? Well, remember we saw in John 6, he used a similar expression, whoever drinks my blood, which he equated with believing in him. And of course, in the immediate context, he reveals that very thing. You drink by faith when you trust Jesus to save you. And so he says in verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And so I would ask you today, if you're here and you've never been saved, are you thirsty? Are you tired of running your own life? And are you willing to come to Jesus Christ? You say, but I'm so sinful, then come to Christ. But I'm so weak, then come to him. Or I don't understand. You'll never understand until you're born again. Because a natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Only Christ can give you that understanding. And only he can give you that satisfaction in life. Believe on him and you'll be saved. You must be willing to believe. You must be willing to forsake your own plan of salvation and trust in his. You must renounce your own good works as any basis for saving you and trust his finished work on the cross. You must be willing to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. And the same applies for those of us who have been saved. Are you thirsty? Or have you filled your life with the sin of this world? I meet some Christians who are not necessarily doing bad things, but they're not doing the best things. And they have so filled their life with the entertainments of this world that they've lost their thirst for Jesus Christ. Now, God commands the Christian in Ephesians 5 to be a river of living water. So then Paul writes, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's not an option for you. I want to say to you this morning, if you cannot say, I am filled with God the Holy Spirit, then you can't say I'm living in disobedience. Because if you are not filled with the Spirit of God this moment, I'm not talking about what happened to you a year ago or 10 years ago, but if you are not filled with the Spirit of God as you sit there in that seat this morning, then you're out of the will of God. This is God's will for the Christian. Don't be foolish. Understand His will. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul writes in the same epistle that the moment God saves you, He gives you the Spirit. He said in Ephesians 1.13, In Him, in Christ, you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you're assailed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you hear the message of salvation, because you can't believe until you hear, when you hear the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, and you believe it, God gives you the Spirit of God. Don't ever listen to these Christians who tell you you get saved and then you get the Spirit. That is just bad theology. Now, there was a time in human history where that was true, before Pentecost, because he was with the believer, but not in the believer. And so they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But after Pentecost is seen in the epistle, the epistles of the New Testament, it's very clear. When you believe, you receive the Spirit. If anyone asks you, have you ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Say, yes. Yes, I have. If you've been saved, say, yes. For we have all been baptized by one Holy Spirit, the Scripture says. Not to have the Holy Spirit is not to be a child of God, Paul will write in Romans 8, 9. 
And so you have the Spirit if you are saved. But while He may be resident in you, it doesn't necessarily mean that He's present in you. While He's indwelling you, it doesn't mean that He's infilling you. And so you need to be filled with the Spirit according to His command and His promise. His command is, be filled with the Spirit. What's His promise? Well, look at it. 1 John 5. We sang this morning, standing on the promises of God. Here's one you can stand on, or maybe that you ought to get under. This is the confidence that we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Is it God's will for me to be filled with the Spirit? Yeah, understand what the will of the Spirit God is. Be filled with the Spirit. It's command. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from Him. Knowing it is God's will for you to be filled with the Spirit, you don't have to persuade God to fill you. You simply need to allow by faith God to fill you. It's a matter not of persuading, but of permitting. Sometimes I will um, help a believer. They come into my office and their life's a mess. And, you know, it's often been said that the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And you can take all the wind out of the balloon, but, you know, people are typically having major problems in their life or in their marriage or at work, very often because they're not filled with God, the Holy Spirit. So I'll talk to them about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how you need to bring your will in line with God's will and no unconfessed sin in your life and totally yielded to the Lord. And then I will invite them to pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit with me. And sometimes I'll bring the believer through it and I'll say, well, did you mean that when you prayed it? Oh, I meant it, Pastor. Are you filled with the Spirit? Well, I still don't know. Are they filled with the Spirit? No, they are not. Why? Because they did not take God at His word. God asks you in faith to allow him to fill you. Oh, but I didn't have a feeling, Pastor. Or I didn't have some kind of ecstatic utterance. That's the opposite of faith. It is an evil and wicked generation, Jesus said, that looks for a sign. We take God at the integrity of his word. So Paul will tell the church at Colossus, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. You came to the cross and you said, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do. Lord Jesus, I plead your blood that when you died and rose again, you did it for me. And at that moment, by faith, God saves you. As you've received him, so walk in him. You say, Lord Jesus, I cannot live this Christian life. I cannot be the husband I need to be. I can't be the employer or employee I need to be. I can't be the dad I need to be unless you fill me by your spirit. I cannot be the preacher I need to be. God knows by his grace that I get on my knees before every service and beg him, plead with him. And I say, God, I can't do it without your help. Do it through me. And by faith, I ask him to fill me with the spirit. And I believe it. When my wife invites us for a nice dinner in our home and she gets it all ready and the dinner's prepared and the table's set, she doesn't say, okay, now get down on the floor and beg. <laughs> no, she invites us to come and to eat. And so God is inviting you this morning to be filled, to be a river of water with the blessed Holy Spirit. If I have a million dollars in the bank and I write a check for $50, I don't need to beg and plead with the teller to give me the 50. I just need to draw on my resources. And the child of God must draw on his resources. But number one, you must be thirsty. Number two, you must come. Number three, by faith, you must drink. And number four, you will overflow. Look what we read in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, 
from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Do you know what a normal Christian life is? Do you know what a spirit-filled Christian is? A spirit-filled Christian is not only an individual who's keen on getting his needs met, but he is keen on meeting the needs of other people. He or she is not someone who just says, God, I want my thirst satisfied. God, I want my needs met. But a person who is truly spirit-filled is a river of revival. He is a supplier of living waters to other people. First to a lost world, but also to the body of Jesus Christ when it is gathered together. You are around people like this sometimes. You can't help but be around and encouraged by their love for Christ and their walk with the Lord. Why? Because they are a river of living water, a river of blessing to you. You say, well, I'm not highly intelligent or overly gifted. You don't have to be for God to use you. If you are willing to be a conduit of God for the glory of God, he will fill you and he will make you a living river of water. But the question I would ask you again this morning is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Of course, when Jesus makes this invitation, he's making a prophetic statement. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now they could believe at that moment if they wished, but the Spirit would not come like a river of living water until the future. John is reminding us that from the reader's perspective, this is still a future event for these people in the first century. It would not happen until Pentecost. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus Christ was not yet glorified. When we come to the 16th chapter, he will say, the Holy Spirit cannot come until I go away. And we'll talk about why that is so when we get there. So that's the invitation of Christ. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see not only his invitation, but the reaction of the people. And what we find here in the remaining verses of this chapter are four reactions that people typically have when the gospel is preached. And the same universal pattern applies to this very day. First in verse 40, in the first part of verse 41, I want you to notice those who are convinced of the message. Look at verse 40, if you will. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Now, what do you mean by the prophet? Well, we've already looked at that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but let me just stir you up by way of reminder. God spoke through Moses, and he said, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God said, Moses, there's coming a time when I'm going to give the people of Israel a prophet like you. He's like Moses and that Moses was a deliverer. He moved the people out of bondage in Egypt into freedom and into new life in the promised land. Likewise... This prophet is coming who is going to bring us out of the bondage of sin into a new relationship through faith in him. Now, who is this prophet? Well, remember on one occasion in John 1, 21, they came to John the Baptist and they said, are you the prophet? What did he say? He said, no. And so these people knew there was coming a prophet and they're eagerly trying to determine who he was. 
These people, as they heard the Lord Jesus preach, as they heard his penetrating words, as he gave the invitation, they said, he's the prophet. Others said, a parallel statement, he's the Christ. Because to say he was the prophet is to say he was the Christ. He was more than a prophet because this prophet, unlike Moses, what you did with him would determine what God would do with you. I turn to Acts 3 for just a second. We get some insight on this. This is not on PowerPoint, so go to Acts 3 for a moment. I think it will be helpful to you. Remember, the book of Acts is a record of the first 30 years of church history. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching uh, his second sermon. Pentecost has already happened. Preached the first sermon. Thousands were saved. A few days later, he goes to the temple. A man is sitting there begging, pleading for money. Peter says, silver and gold I have not. But in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man is instantly healed. It becomes an occasion for another sermon. And beginning here in Acts 3, verse 14, he says of the Jewish people, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember that? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us the son of Abbas. And so they took Barabbas and they put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is the Old Testament, that his Christ, his Messiah, should suffer, and he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. That's what is still in the future, the period of restoration when the coming kingdom will come, of things of which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And then he says, notice, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. What is he doing? Peter is connecting Jesus with that prophet that Moses spoke about. For Messiah would be both prophet, priest, and king. And so here are these people, and they recognize this is no ordinary prophet. This is the prophet. This is the Christ. These are people who were thirsty, who came to the Lord Jesus, and they believed, they drank. They were convinced of the message. That's the first response. Notice the second response. Not only were those who were convinced about the message, but back here in John 7, there were those who are contrary to the message. Those who are contrary to this message. Look at the middle of verse 41, if you will. Still others were saying... Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Here we have some people who in their own argumentative way try to say that Jesus is not the promised one. They ask this question, shall the Christ come out of Galilee mocking those who had come to believe? Doesn't the scripture say that he will come from Bethlehem? 
Yes, it does. But in their unbelief and in their ignorance, they embrace these half-truths, which is what most unbelief does. They are right in their understanding of prophecy. Yes, the Christ will come from Bethlehem, but they are wrong in its application as it comes to Jesus Christ. Had they had just taken the time, had they had been willing to know whether or not his word was from the Father, had they just been willing to look at the facts, they would have realized that he was born in Bethlehem, and yes, he was raised in Nazareth, just like the prophet said that as well. But you see, these people knew too much. They thought they knew it all. And they were not willing to examine the scriptures carefully and to compare those scriptures with Christ. And so in their pseudo-scholarship, like so many theologues today, they lead people down the pathway to hell. They're really not thirsty to find the Messiah. We read in verse 43, So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. I love that verse. It's a really great verse. You say, what's so great about it? It tells me that these who believed he was the prophet, the Christ, had not simply an intellectual assent of these facts, but it was a heart truth. They wouldn't buy into the intellectual argument so much so that they were willing to break and divide over this issue. Maybe they didn't understand all the scriptures and all that it had said about the birthplace of the Christ, but they knew he was it. They remind me of the blind man in John 9 who's riddled with questions and ridiculed up one side and down the other. And he says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And so we're told in verse 44, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They would if they could have, but they couldn't because... As we've seen already, he is living on a divine timetable. His time had not yet come. Now, in addition to those who are convinced and those who are contrary to this message, I want you to notice those who are confused about the message. There's a third group who are just scratching their heads in confusion, and they are the temple police. Now, if you remember, we looked at them last week in verse 32, and we saw that they were commissioned by the Pharisees to go and to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. So they go to arrest him, and when they get there, they hear him preach, and they're arrested. They're stopped dead in their tracks as they hear him preach. We read, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they, the Pharisees, said to them, why did you not bring him? It seemed incredible that this group of armed men on their own turf could not arrest this teacher. Please notice their explanation. The officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Those words have almost become proverbial down through the centuries. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. It was not that Jesus was a great orator, though he was. It was not simply that the Lord Jesus preached in a, in a memorable way, though he did. It was not simply that he spoke with great authority as the people testified that he did. But when he spoke, he spoke the very words of God. Why? Because he is God. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 023. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, 
What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.